0: the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. And while you're returning there, let me just say, it is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. So I was thinking back and forth, should I... Should I depart for a moment from the Gospel of John or maybe move uh, towards the end of the Gospel and preach from a text specifically on the resurrection and, and the empty tomb or some other portion from Paul's writings? And it just so happened in the providence of God that as we've been moving through the Gospel of John, we come to this particular text this morning where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says something to Nicodemus that indicates both that he is going to die and that he's going to be raised. So we're just going to stay here. (laughs) This text also, um, maybe you'll remember last Good Friday, last year, uh, this text was not the specific one we were looking at. We looked at Numbers uh, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, the, the passage we read a little bit ago and looked at Jesus's death from that perspective, and uh, and then this Easter season we are we are back now looking at the same passage only from the Gospel of John. So I figured it would be good just to continue going through the Gospel of John, and we will see specifically as we come towards the end of the passage where the resurrection fits in all of this. It is central. Um, It is the very ground for which Jesus can say that if we believe in Him, we can have eternal life. So, that is where we are moving, uh, and we will take little steps getting there uh, towards the end. So I want to read uh, uh, together John chapter 3. Picking up in verse 9 and going down to verse 15 this morning. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Nicodemus said to Him, that is Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice in this word this morning that your Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the promised Christ, had to be, out of necessity, to accomplish the will of God, be lifted up on a cross and be lifted up at your right hand, seated at the place of authority. Father, we rejoice this morning that Jesus, when He entered into this world and took upon Himself human flesh, knew what He came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost and to redeem guilty sinners such as us. Father, I pray that this morning, as we continue looking at what Jesus said to Nicodemus, that you would open up our hearts, grant to us the illuminating work of the Spirit, so that we might rejoice in all of the fullness of Jesus' work on our behalf. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are picking up this morning in the middle of this back-and-forth conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We saw last week that John, as he is writing his Gospel, is demonstrating for us that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-hoped-for and awaited-for Messiah that was promised by the Old Testament prophets. He is the end point to which all of the promises of God are moving. He is the one who ushers in the new age of the Messiah because He Himself is the Messiah. And He is the one who has the authority to rebuild and to relocate God's temple in Himself place of worship, now is focused in Him. So John in chapter 2, as we saw, is helping us to see these truths as he recounts for us the events of Jesus turning the water into wine, as well as the event of Jesus cleansing the temple of all of its corrupt worship practices. We also saw was that John, as he's moving through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, is presenting us with several different responses to what Jesus is teaching and doing. There is the right response of belief that is seen in His disciples. There is the wrong response of rejection and challenging Jesus' authority that is seen by many of the other Jews and Pharisees and scribes. And then what we saw, particularly last week, was the kind of response that expresses belief in Jesus. But what we saw was that this belief that is expressed is inadequate. It's not a faith that saves. The kind of belief that acknowledges Something true about Jesus, but which completely misses who he truly is. And we saw that Nicodemus is presented as an example of this kind of inadequate belief, at least at this point in his life. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the beginning of chapter 3 and he says to him, Rabbi, we know. We know that you are a teacher come from God. We know that you are a teacher, and since you have come from God, that this is a confession. We believe you're a prophet. That's a significant confession that Nicodemus is making. That, that is something that is accurate about Jesus. He was a prophet. Jesus was a teacher. But He was far more and he is far more than just a prophet and just a teacher. To, to illustrate the inadequacy of Nicodemus' belief at this point, let's just compare what Nicodemus says about Jesus after seeing his signs with what one of Jesus' disciples said of Jesus after seeing his signs. Let's compare Nicodemus with Nathaniel. In chapter 1, Nathanael sees Jesus perform a sign. Jesus comes to Nathanael and he reveals that he knows the depths of Nathanael's character and that he knows everything Nathanael is doing without actually seeing him face to face. So if you remember in chapter one, he he comes to Nathaniel and and he says to them, uh, he says to Nathaniel that I saw you sitting under the fig tree when no one else was actually around Nathaniel at that moment. And, And Nathaniel recognizes what was going on. He was alone under the fig tree and here Jesus is revealing that he knew without actually being in front of him where Nathanael was. This was a sign. This was a miracle. This was a revelation that Jesus had divine knowledge of who and what Nathanael was and was doing. Nathanael, Nathanael, when he recognizes this sign, says to Jesus in verse 49 of chapter 1, Rabbi! Rabbi! You are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. That's a far different conclusion than what Nicodemus reached. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Nathanael was saying, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King. You're the Christ. Christ is here. Nathaniel recognized that Jesus was far more than just a rabbi. He was far more than a prophet. Nathaniel recognized that Jesus was the Christ. The promised Christ. Nicodemus wasn't quite there. He wasn't at the point of recognizing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. He believed things that were right about Jesus. But on the point of who Jesus fundamentally was, He wasn't even close. wasn't even close. So, Jesus enters into this conversation with Nicodemus, and He goes right to the heart of why it is that Nicodemus doesn't truly believe. Why it is that Nicodemus does not recognize Jesus as the Christ. He says, Nicodemus... You do not see the kingdom of God. You do not see its king who is standing right before you. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God because Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that unbelief is not a matter of the will. Unbelief is not a matter of lacking facts or information. Unbelief is not the result of not being able to see God work some divine miracle. Jesus is going to the heart of Nicodemus' unbelief, and thus the heart of all unbelief, and saying that a person does not believe because they've only been born once. They've only had one birth. They've been born naturally into this world as everyone is. And thus, they are only descendants of Adam. They are in Adam. They inherit the nature, the fallen nature of Adam. And as such, they are only of the flesh. And they do what those in the flesh do. They sin. They reject God. They are blind to the things of God. They are deaf to His Word. They cannot see nor enter His kingdom. To believe... To see and to enter into the kingdom of God, to love and behold Jesus as Christ requires a supernatural new birth, a supernatural work of God within a man. It requires the Spirit of God to miraculously and fundamentally recreate a person into something new. It requires the Spirit of God to cleanse a person of their sin that blinds them the things of God. And it requires that the Spirit of God cause them to be born anew and put within them a new Spirit-born heart that has affections and love for the things of God. When this second birth takes place, when God has divinely acted upon a person, then you see the kingdom of God. And then you believe in Christ. So if you are here this morning and you have believed in Christ, you trust Him and you recognize and acknowledge Him as The Christ and your, your heart is given over completely to Him. This happened. This happened. The Spirit of God opened your eyes. The Word of God went forth. And as the Word of God went forth, the Spirit of God moved To cause you to be born again. And what do people who experience the second birth do? They believe. It's it's the fruit of the work of God. As as James says in James chapter one, verse eighteen, of his own will, that is, God the Father's, the Father of lights, of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that is where we pick up this morning in the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Jesus is addressing what is at the heart of Nicodemus's unbelief and now in the verses we are looking at this morning he addresses what Nicodemus is missing about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and so as we make our way through these verses i want to draw out three truths about Jesus from this text each truth move moving towards the climax of the resurrection. Jesus is the Son of Man who must be lifted up in an exalted manner. So, three truths as we move through this text this morning. First, first we see that Jesus has a unique authority to speak and teach of heavenly things. Jesus has a unique authority to speak and teach. Heavenly things. In other words, he speaks of the eternal heavenly works of God not as a prophet who has received revelation from God and is just communicating accurately what he has received, but as one who knows the works of God because he comes from heaven. Because all of these works and these plans of God to be carried out in the world. Originated with him. The authority that I'm speaking of here, this kind of unique authority, is very much a kind of experiential authority. So, for example, I was watching a, an interview uh, on a program called Uncommon Knowledge the other day, where the interviewer was um, at, uh, was speaking to a certain military general. who was retired. His name was General George Mattis. And this interviewer was just asking him about all of his different opinions on certain um, foreign matters and military matters. And as I'm listening to this interview, one of the things that's just running through my mind is we often listen to politicians or teachers or professors when it comes to foreign matters and when it comes to military matters. And many of them may have maybe spot on on the kind of things that they're advocating. But when you listen to a general who has been in combat, who has been on the front lines, you are listening to someone with a certain kind of authority that's different from someone who's never been in combat. You are listening to this person and you are recognizing that their their teaching and their opinion on this matter carries a profound amount of weight that maybe someone else doesn't have. That's the kind of authority I mean here when I'm speaking about this unique authority Jesus has. Jesus can speak and teach and reveal heavenly truths because He's from there. He is the Son of God who has entered into the world and can uniquely reveal the will of God to us. So, in verse 9, we find Nicodemus asking a question. Jesus has just taught him about the necessary new birth by the Spirit, and Nicodemus asked him, how can these things be? Just heard you say, Jesus, that I've got to be born a second time? That God has to uniquely act within me and I can't do anything about it? How can these things be? Notice as well, Nicodemus is not asking a question just out of curiosity. This is a question raised as an objection. He's asking it very much like, maybe you've encountered this before, someone who asks a question that has an implied objection in it. So, for example, very often the objection to Christianity is the so-called problem of evil. How can God be a truly loving God, and there be evil in the world? That's a question. It's often asked. And implied in that question is an objection. This can't be true. The God of the Bible can't be real because these things don't go together. It's an objection. That's what Nicodemus is doing here. There is an implied objection in his question. He is saying, how can these things be? They can't be Jesus. This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't fit with all of the things I, as a teacher of Israel, know about the Scriptures. We know that this is how he is asking this question because of how Jesus responds to him in verses 10 and 11. Jesus rebukes him. In verse 10, for not understanding. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You are a teacher, Nicodemus. You should be very familiar with the prophet Ezekiel who prophesied about these very things. He prophesied that in the New Covenant, Messianic age, the Spirit of God would work in the hearts of God's people and remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and cleanse them with water and place the Spirit within them. You should know this. Notice what he says in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you and this is this is plural here not only this is this is a you towards nicodemus and a you towards all the pharisees and the unbelieving jews of whom he is representing but you do not receive our testimony you're not receiving this you're rejecting this now when jesus when jesus says we speak here he's not referring to what he, as well as his disciples, are saying the, the reason he's using this language we speak is the same reason Nicodemus was using this language when he first came to Jesus. So, if you remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the beginning of chapter 3 and he says, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher. And Nicodemus there was presenting himself as a kind of representative of many other people who shared his beliefs. But as he is saying, we know, he is telling Jesus at the same time, I know, this is what I know. So Jesus answers him with this same kind of language. Nicodemus says, we know you are a teacher come from God. Jesus answers, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen. In other words, I speak of what I know. But then he says to Nicodemus, you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus' question is an objection. And Jesus calls him on it. You're not receiving this. And then he says in verses 12 and 13, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now this is a somewhat strange statement could require a lot of time to explain, but I just want to get to the heart of what Jesus means here. Nicodemus does not believe, at this point, in the new birth, in the work of the Spirit, in the heart. And this new birth is a work of God that must take place here on earth. It has to. There is no dying, and then you get to be born again. The work of the Spirit must take place on the earth. If a person is going to enter into God's kingdom and be in a right relationship with Him, the new birth must take place here and now in this present age on earth. That is what Jesus means by the earthly thing. He says, Nicodemus, you don't believe this. You don't receive our testimony. And if you don't believe the things that must take place here and now, if you don't believe the works of God that must take place in your life now, how will you believe if I tell you about any 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 heavenly truths? Then Jesus adds in verse 13, why he has the authority to speak about heavenly things at all. He says it's because he's from there. That's his place. That's where he originates from. That's the very place he created. He says, No one has ascended into heaven, which is, this is not a reference here to an actual ascension, like what happens literally when Jesus leaves the earth and goes back into heaven. He's saying, no one has gone up into heaven so as to live there and be able to then explain to others about the realities of heaven with one exception, me. Me, because I'm from there. He says, I descended from there. It's similar to what he says in John 6, verse forty. Six, Where he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. That's the point Jesus is making. I have the authority to teach about these things because I am from heaven. And so Jesus is claiming a unique authority all to himself to reveal the plan and work and mission of God in the world and in heaven because it is a plan and work and mission which has Him as the main object and has Him as the one who carries all of it out. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means the same thing it was intended to mean to Nicodemus when he said it to him. If we desire to know God, If anyone desires to know the true living Creator and Maker of all things, if we desire to know what He is doing in the world, what God requires of us, what we need to enter into His kingdom, if we desire to know about heaven or any other spiritual question, we don't go to the latest best-selling book by a five-year-old or a ten-year-old or a fully grown adult telling us about a near-death experience they had where they went to heaven and returned and are now speaking about it. We don't go there. We don't go to any other religion that gives lip service to Jesus and does not recognize Him as the sovereign King of the world. We go to Christ. To Him directly. And we go to Christ because He is the only one who speaks with authority. Several months back, one of these best-selling books, Heaven is for Real, uh, which had been published about some young child who had gone into heaven and come back to tell the whole world what heaven was all about, had to be pulled. Had to be pulled because the writers came out and said it was all a fabrication. We don't go to those outside sources because they would have no clue what they're talking about. We go to Jesus because He is the one who has the authority to reveal these spiritual realities to us. The second truth about Jesus that we see from this text is that Jesus becomes a curse on behalf of sinners. He not only has the authority, a unique authority, to reveal heavenly things to us, and the plans of God to us. But Jesus becomes a curse on behalf of sinners. In verse 14, Jesus draws a parallel between Himself and a very familiar event in the history of Israel. He says in verse 14, "...and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness..." so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the occasion of this serpent being lifted up is, it comes from the passage of Scripture that we read earlier, uh, that Tim read earlier from Numbers 21. And what's taking place in that passage of Scripture or immediately what's going on uh, within, uh, uh, within and among the Israelites is that they're currently in the wilderness Lots of different things have already occurred so far. They they have actually, with their own eyes, seen the judgment of God against Korah and those who were rebelling against Moses and his priesthood. What we have seen already, and the Israelites have seen, the earth swallow them up. We've seen divine. Wonders, signs, miracles. That they have already, at this point, been redeemed from bondage out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. They've seen the sea split in two. So so at this point, Israel has already seen God working mightily among them and on their behalf. And immediately preceding this particular event in Numbers 21... They are in the wilderness, and there's a certain king, a Canaanite king, the king of Arad, who hears about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to fight against them, and he wants to enslave them. He wants to do to them what the Egyptians did to them, and he does it. He comes against the Israelites. He takes some of them for his own slaves. And so what do the Israelites do? They cry out, they are a weak people. They are not established in any land. They do not have any great resources. They need deliverance from a mighty king who's coming against them. And what does God do? He does what He always does to His people. He delivers them. This is the immediate context of then what takes place in Numbers 21. They have just been saved miraculously from a tyrannical king... And they begin traveling northward in the wilderness, and they grow impatient with God. They begin to complain about God. They, in fact, begin to accuse God of malicious intents against them. They begin to loathe His provisions, loathe the food that He's giving them, and they say that God has brought them into the wilderness to kill them blasphemy so the Lord judges them he sends poisonous serpents among them many of them are bit and many of them die so what does Israel do at this point they do what they always do they go to God and they ask forgiveness they repent they turn to him they ask him Lord have mercy upon us Israel confesses their sin and they ask for mercy and God provides for them a way of salvation. He tells Moses, Moses, I want you to build a serpent. Build a serpent in the likeness of all of these serpents that have been biting and killing all the people. Build a serpent in the likeness of the very serpent that is my curse upon the people. Build the serpent, raise it up on a pole. And if anyone looks to that serpent, once they have been bitten, they will live. They will not die. And so Moses does. He builds a bronze serpent just like the poisonous serpents. He lifts it up in the wilderness. And if any looked, they would live. So God tells them that in order for them to be saved from his judgment, They must look to the very object of the curse. And they will live. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he must become like that serpent. Jesus is saying he must become a curse. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man. Be lifted up. And here we learn one of the most scandalous truths in all of scripture. Here we learn about the scandal of the cross. That God dies. That God himself becomes a curse. That the sinless, spotless, perfect son of God would himself become a curse So that just as in the wilderness, of sinners look to Him, they might live. That is absolute heresy to the believing Jew. Foolishness to the Gentiles. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree he says in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for our sake god made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god this is the great exchange that we heard eric preach on friday And of this great exchange, one Christian writer, writing around the year 130 A.D., only about a hundred years after the ministry of Jesus, one Christian writer said this, In God's mercy He took upon Himself our sins. He Himself gave up His own Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, The just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but His righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Oh, the sweet exchange! Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. That's what one Christian writer said as he wrote a letter to an unbelieving pagan explaining to him the glory of the cross. But there's even more. There is more. We see third and finally that Jesus is not only the one who is to become a curse for us, but that Jesus is to be exalted. Jesus is to be exalted. You see, Jesus goes on to add a purpose. The reason why the Son of Man must be lifted up, in verse 15. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now the primary meaning of being lifted up is a reference to His death. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to Myself. And then, John adds in verse 33, He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. That's its primary meaning. But Jesus' death, in and of itself, does not give us life. Jesus' death does not give us life. Let me explain what I mean so that this is not taken as blasphemy. To put it another way, had Jesus only died, had He been crucified and buried and stayed dead, eternal life would not be in the cards for us. Had he died and stayed dead, the only legitimate response we could have is the one that Mary has when she's at his tomb in John 20, weeping. Weeping that the Christ she had hoped for and waited for and longed for and followed, weeping that he was dead. That's the only response. We could have. No sure hope of eternal life. So, for Jesus to say that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life, this must also imply that His lifting up includes His exaltation. It includes His resurrection and ascension. Because it is the fact that He was raised to life that gives us the hope of eternal life. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up, was sent to the cross for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Raised so that we might be right with God and have life in Him. He says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Ephesians 2, five. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Life and the hope of eternal life is directly connected to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ. It is connected to the supreme act of being lifted up, not the lifting up at the cross by the hands of wicked men, but the lifting up by God at his right hand as Peter says to the high priest in Acts chapter 5 verse 30 and following the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree God lifted him up at his right hand as leader and savior. God lifted him up. And as a result, that is where our hope remains. Friends, this Resurrection Sunday, this Easter, is full of glory and hope because Jesus' tomb is no longer filled. It is empty. And because Jesus' tomb is empty, The promise and the realization for us is that our tombs and our graves will also be empty at His appointed time. That is why Easter weekend is most worthy of all celebration. Good Friday was good because our sins were dealt with on the cross. But had Good Friday ended with no resurrection, we would only be weak. Good Friday is good because of what's coming on Sunday. Good Friday is good because what takes place according to the scriptures on the third day. Good Friday is good because Sunday is good because the tomb is empty. And as I said in the beginning, all we should be able to do is say he is risen and walk out of here rejoicing forever. Because in Christ, friends, in Christ, and because he has been raised from the dead, if we believe, we look to the Son of Man as the Israelites look to the lifted up serpent on a pole. If we but look, gaze upon him, fix our eyes upon him, give him our hearts. If we but look, he says, any who believes will have eternal life in me. Would you pray with me? Father, we can sing hallelujah this morning because of your mighty work. We can sing praises to God because death is without victory. Death no longer has esteem. Father, we can rejoice this day because we see in Jesus Your King exalted at Your right hand. Raised to new life. Raised with a new body that will never die again. And as we see Jesus, we are seeing a picture of what is to come. And so we can sing hallelujah. Lord, I pray, I pray that if there is any among us this morning, any among us who has not recognized their absolute need for Jesus to bear their sin and for Jesus to become a curse on their behalf, if they have not recognized that Jesus has been raised from the dead so that they might live, Father, we pray this morning that you would do what you said you would do, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would give them the Spirit to open up their hearts and their eyes to see the beauty of Christ. I pray all of this in Jesus' name.